Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Melanie Williams about A Taste of Honey, uh, which is a new book uh, about the film uh, A Taste of Honey. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Um, This this is a fascinating book about um, a fascinating film and... Uh, the book both, I, I think, kind of unpacks and explains the film, but also reinforces the case about why it's important and I guess kind of why it needs a book uh, written about it. It's part of a series that the British Film Institute uh, publish, which cover all different kinds uh, of films. And I'm really interested, actually, to know, I, I guess, where this A Taste of Honey book fits and, and almost kind of how you came uh, to write this kind of book uh, as part of this series. Yeah, well, I've, I've been a long admirer of the, the film classics series, um, which has obviously been going for like over 30 years now. And, you know, these short books that focus on a single film and kind of really delve into the, the details of a particular film, I, I'm really drawn to that approach so I was I was really keen to write one and I think some of the things that maybe haven't been in the series as much are things to do with um, British cinema which for various reasons has often uh, not been taken as seriously as other national cinemas Um, and also I know that the series editors were really keen to include more um, films that involved um, women's work um, in screenwriting, directing uh, a range of different roles. And because of Sheila Delaney's input that I was very keen to foreground in my analysis of The Taste of Honey, um, this kind of ticked several boxes that I think the series wanted to to include. And, you know, it's, it's a film that I've long admired and it was great to have a chance to kind of explore it and write about it in, in depth. I'd done a bigger project on 1960s British cinema and obviously this film had been part of um, a particular moment in British cinema the sort of early 60s the British new wave the kitchen sink the drawing on theatre and new kinds of literature Um, and I'd only been able to sort of talk about it in passing alongside lots of other films from that period of the 1960s so it was lovely to be able to really um, explore this single film in in depth that really comes through actually in in, in the book I I guess both as you've said the kind of background of you know really deep scholarship to contextualize the film but also um, I mean I, I hope I've read this correctly like but the sense of your sort of I guess love of the film and your kind of personal engagement with uh, with, with, with the kind of like uh, joy of, of being able to write about it. And I suppose it, this sounds like a kind of odd question, um, particularly in the context of listeners who might not be from Britain, but 
Um, the British uh, kind of uh, knowledge of A Taste of Honey, it has, in some ways, it, it's kind of part of the British uh, cinema canon, um, but other uh, countries might not be maybe aware of the film. You know, it, it might ha- not have the same kind of cultural um, kind of status. So I wonder if you could, and again, this is a strange question given you've written a full book about it, but I wonder if you could kind of like introduce the film a little bit uh, and yeah, maybe again, say like expand on that sense of like, this is why the film needed a book about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's before it's a film, it's a really important landmark in, in British theater. So in the late 1950s, um, a teenager, teenage girl from Salford writes this play, A Taste of Honey. Um, and she sends it off to, uh, a really influential, important um, theatre producer of the time, Joan Littlewood, um, who's built up a reputation for putting on productions from uh, different kinds of writers. So Sheila Delaney, who's still in her team, sends off this play and says, you know, what do you think? And Littlewood spots the, the talent and the interest in this drama and puts on the play at her uh, company theatre workshop and it's a it's a huge success and then it comes alongside lots of other exciting things that are happening in British theatre and British literature at the time and lots of these like um, Look Back in Anger and uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning are subsequently adapted as films several of them by a company called Woodfall Films, which is um, kind of part run by Tony Richardson, who's the director of The Taste of Honey. So it emerges from this particular moment in post-war British culture of being more interested in working class voices, not always very interested in female voices. So Sheila Delaney is a bit of an outlier here, but her play is about um, a teenager Joe, who's about to leave school, a kind of ordinary school in, in Salford. She has a very fractious relationship with her mother, um, Helen, who's uh, a kind of, you know, is not terribly engaged as, as a mother. So there's this kind of love-hate relationship between the two of them. And they're always flitting from one place to another so that they don't have to pay the rent. So they live quite this quite peripatetic, uh, precarious life. Joe meets uh, a sailor, Jimmy, um, has a relationship with him. He goes off again on his ship and she finds that she's pregnant. Um, And she kind of teams up with this friend that she meets uh, called Jeff. And they set up a sort of home together and have thoughts maybe of kind of making a a family together. Um, But that isn't to be for various reasons. And in the end of the story, she's kind of awkwardly reunited with her mother while she's pretty much, you know, about to go into labour. So she's about to have her baby. And that's where the story ends. So that's the kind of basic narrative shape of it. In in terms of some of the reasons why it was controversial, um, Jimmy, the sailor that she has a relationship with, is black. Uh, Jeff, the friend that she sets up home with, is gay. 
So there were already these real um, kind of flashpoints for representation around that time, the late 50s, early 60s. And this play and later film uh, is really engaging with that quite boldly, quite in quite an upfront way. Um, and I think it's, you know, it would be a remarkable play and a remarkable film written by anybody to come from a first time writer who's still very young. It's really uh, quite breathtaking. Well, one of the sort of things the book does quite early on is to try and say, you know, it's really important we foreground Sheila Delaney as, as you know, as the kind of key um, author, you know, you know the, the, the sort of, it, it, it's her work, but also in that kind of great tradition, I think, of um, thinking about how something like a film actually gets on screen. You try and talk about, and I use this lovely term, that the kind of the hive mind um, that kind of contribute to, to getting the film uh, made. And you've talked about people like Joan Littlewood, Tony Richardson, you know, in, in, in terms of, um, both the theatre and, and making it as a film. But I'm intrigued to, I, I suppose, kind of situate the film um, as well as, you know, with, with Delaney as the obvious kind of key influence, but situate the film's hive mind as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, t- it's a terrible play on words with the fact that the word honey is in the title. <laughs> Let's just acknowledge my fondness for a, a terrible pun. Um, but, yeah, I mean... it. it through some of the research that I'd done previously on the 60s British cinema, I was very aware that there is um, a whole uh, kind of cast and crew of people who are making key contributions to the, 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 the thing that appears on the screen and that focusing solely on the director or even focusing predominantly on the writer, then sort of obscures or disguises a whole range of contributions that that are being made. So I was very interested in um, Walter Lassely's work as cinematographer. He does some really fantastic, really innovative work on this. He mixes up different kinds of film stock, even though he was advised against this, um, so that some bits of the film are kind of grainier and rougher than others, but there's a, a pattern to that. So when Joe's life is, and Joe is the teenage character played by um, Rita Tushingham, and when her life has these kind of moments of possibility, the look of the film is kind of cleaner. And when it's harder for her, the look of the film is grittier and grainier in, in its actual texture. So there's some wonderful stuff going on. Also in terms of lighting, um, because you've got faster film stocks that can cope with natural lighting rather than having to really artificially illuminate scenes you can do some wonderful things with that and lastly experiments with that and then you've also got the people who are scouting locations dressing sets so the whole um, production design area you've got Ralph Brinton and Ted Marshall doing really wonderful work in you know finding the right places and it's all shot on location you know, even the domestic interiors are real places they're not sets that have been constructed they're real rooms real spaces uh, not all of them in Salford but certainly all the exteriors are all filmed in the 
the Northwest. Um, and again, that was hugely innovative and really important to Tony Richardson, but also the other people making the films. And then you've got Tony Gibbs doing wonderful stuff with the editing as well. And he's kind of just starting on his career and, you know, fantastically kind of um, experimental, interesting editor doing these sort of long dissolves. And um, so it's there's creativity on all fronts, I think, and it all comes together to help build this uh, particular vision of the world that we see in, in A Taste of Honey. I guess that's how would I describe it, the kind of like material uh, conditions of, of the film's production. Um, one of the things the book also does is, is try and think about uh, what's going on in terms of key themes. And, and you flagged actually um, this question of, I suppose, uh, motherhood and, and the ambivalence of motherhood, uh, what it's like to be, I guess, kind of, you know, a teenager who's about uh, to become an adult um, then there's, you know, and again, we, we touched on this, uh, questions of representations of race, of uh, sexuality, um, of, of romance. And I wonder if you could introduce maybe some of the key themes of the film, and, and perhaps we'll do that in two parts. So um, could you maybe kind of sketch out um, why kind of motherhood and the ambivalence about motherhood is, is important in the film? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you, you have to remember that this is... Um, This is a film of the early 60s and it's based on a play from the late 1950s. So this is a a kind of, you know, a pre-second wave feminist era. And it's also a period in which motherhood is really um, vaunted as women's fulfilment in life, their their goal, their, their kind of objective. And so it's very interesting to see it being kind of unpicked and, and undermined and, and critiqued. And not only through this really difficult mother-daughter relationship that that Joe has with her own mother, where there's there's love and there's a bond, but there's also this kind of scratchy animosity between them that also often results in very funny dialogue. But it's very kind of, you know, on the attack. It's not a, a, a lovely kind of gentle mother-daughter relationship and then you've also got Joe's own kind of ambivalent feelings about uh, expecting a baby so in the film she's kind of reading out stuff from this manual on motherhood about the little stranger and um, you know the things that she can expect when she's expecting and kind of making fun of them really rather than uh, kind of talking about it in hushed tones as this you know miracle that she's awaiting it's actually much more um prosaic than that but also you know a really worrying end point and joe is kind of riddled with anxieties and doubts about her own ability to mother whether the how the child will turn out you know what will happen um some of that's overlaid with concerns about you know her her you know my baby will be black this is what she announces to her mother when she finally tells her that she's pregnant and her kind of fears about what that will mean in the culture of the time are all kind of being aired so it's you know it's it's very far from being celebratory of of motherhood um and 
one of the things I really like about it is the way that it leaves it as a, as a question that's hanging in the air. So we end the story when she's about to have the baby. So we never really find out what happens next. We can kind of guess or surmise what might happen, um, but it kind of leaves it open. And I think that's a really interesting thing in terms of the British new wave as well, because so often these stories about are about men being trapped by women's pregnancies. And, you know, Saturday night and Sunday morning is a good example of that, having to, you know, kind of find ways around this or get married in, in, in a hurry or uh, procure some kind of abortion. Um, so it's much more focused on what that does to the men, whereas A Taste of Honey is absolutely focused on this girl and her experience of what it means to find herself unmarried and pregnant and you know trying to work out how she's gonna live i mean you touched on questions of race um and again you know situated that in in, in the context in which the film comes out what about um jeff and joe's relationship in terms of how i suppose and, and one of the things you, you do really uh, kind of brilliantly at the end of the book and, and we'll probably talk about it in detail is, is think about this you know sort of emergence of a kind of queer family uh on screen at a time um where this is you know not really what's going on uh with both mainstream representations um in, in british cinema and also you know to an extent in, in kind of british culture more widely so jeff and joe's relationship um you know there are kind of i suppose sort of elements of queer romance there are questions of um, sexuality, both Jeff's and Joe's. And I'm interested to know, I suppose, a bit more about what the film is doing with those two. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's so much in this film, I think. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it was actually quite a struggle to keep to the um, the word count of the, the book series, because, you know, you think, oh, well, I'll have plenty of space to talk about all the details of the film. And actually, there's so much in there that it was, you know, quite quite difficult so yeah the the kind of complexity of the relationship that that Jeff and Joe have and it kind of moves from being friends and allies to Joe describes him as like a big sister but then there's also this uh, wanting to be the father of Joe's baby as well and scenes where he's uh, almost kind of mothers her and looks after her so there's this variety of different roles that are kind of overlaid onto this relationship and it's close and it's again bound by humour this is one of the characteristics of Joe's relationship with Jimmy is that they have a really they have a good time they they laugh they joke they they muck about together and you can see that being replicated in the relationship with Jeff as well, that they they kind of have fun and um, make fun of each other. But there is this really profound bond as well that is severed at the end because of um, all kinds of things, but also the return of Joe's mother. But in the meantime, we've seen this really unusual relationship between uh, a young man and a young woman uh, that has shades of all these different ways that uh, people can relate to each other um, but is not fixed in any way um, and one of the things that I really enjoy about the film is this idea of setting up an alternative 
family together. I mean, they almost set up like a sort of art school squat <laughs> in this, you know, very rickety old, looks like a kind of warehouse. So it's kind of ahead of its time. It's a bit like artists taking on industrial space and then turning it into living space. So they have this home together and they decorate it and they cover it with posters of kind of European travel and uh, textiles and mobiles and all kinds of interesting ways of kind of fashioning this new space that reflects this new potential family. Um, So there's so much potential there, but then it's not fulfilled there are various ways that it's sort of curtailed and poor Jeff at the end is kind of wandering off on his own again um so I mean in the book I talk about this being in some ways like the what will become a very familiar trope of the gay best friend to the heterosexual heroine but I think there's a lot more going on in it than that it's not purely that Jeff is a sort of adjunct to Joe Um, They're also both very complex and interesting characters in their own right. And again, we have to think about the time of this. This is, you know, truly revolutionary stuff when, well, I mean, homosexuality is not being talked about very much in films. It's just starting to be talked about in the context of uh, historical dramas, like the two films about Oscar Wilde that come out in the early 60s, or in kind of melodramas like Victim, which is a brilliant film with with Dirk Bogard. But um, the revelation of the character's um, gay identity is this kind of big outburst moment, whereas Jeff in A Taste of Honey is gay, but that's not the sole narrative point that he fulfills. That's not even the main thing about him. It's much more to do with this nuanced relationship with Joe so but it's all quite new I think for this time in in British cinema and I think in some ways you know later films still struggling to catch up with what the ground that Taste of Honey breaks. What about the film's reception Um, and and again maybe we'll do this in sort of two parts which is um, how the book does actually in two separate chapters um, you were talking there about, um, I suppose, the um, revolutionary things that the film is doing uh, on screen. Was the film sort of successful? Did audiences buy into it? Um, what What was that kind of, uh, I suppose, what would we call it, kind of commercial um, and uh, maybe commercial critical reception? Yeah, I mean, the, the film is is a success. It does well. It, it's, um, it doesn't do quite as well as uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which Woodfall had kind of released the the previous year. Um, But that was like the top film of its year. It it performs very strongly at the box office. And I think it it kind of is part of this whole cohort of new kinds of films that are addressing new kind of characters and, and new parts of, of different parts of the UK than the, the kind of London home counties standard. Um, that idea of things from room at the top onwards uh, being interested in 
northern cities and characters and settings and being interested in um, working class characters and their own particular situations and, and dilemmas, um, which kind of draws on the literature and theatre, which is which is also doing that. But these are also squarely in the realm of the popular. So they're kind of mainstream films that have a mainstream success with a kind of mainstream audience. Uh, they, they do really well. Um, and another thing that they're celebrated for is discovering new screen personalities. So I think that's another really important part of the success of the film is the kind of launch pad for um, Rita Tushingham. So Woodfall had launched Albert Finney um, and they'd be launching Tom Courtney. So these different kinds of stars from the, the, the idea that you had to be trained and you had to get rid of all traces of a northern accent, otherwise you couldn't make it as an actor. Um, and she's a kind of, you know, female variation on this idea that we want to see different sorts of faces and hear different sorts of voices and see different stories played out um and it's and it's popular it it does well um and it's continuing popularity of course had a lot to do with the fact that it was on the uh, o level and gcse syllabus so people studied the play and as a result, watched the film. So it's had this kind of real resonance and afterlife, I think, that's that's kind of kept its imagery in the public eye for longer than maybe some of the other films from around that period. What about in terms of the critical, perhaps more sort of scholarly uh, reception? One of the things you do in the book is um, try and bring a flavour of the debates that happen over uh, place, over um, the kind of aesthetics uh, of, of place that come through in the film. Um, so, yeah, if it's a sort of popular hit uh, for very good reasons and then gets a certain amount of um, popular legitimacy, as, as you said, through things like, um, you know, being one of those touchstones that um, kids have to encounter in school, what about the more sort of scholarly critical reception? Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that while at the time it came out, it had lots of, um, you know, very, very positive reviews and a positive audience response. There were some people that were not especially impressed by not just A Taste of Honey, but that whole group of British realist films from that period. So I talk a bit about the magazine Movie, which is a really influential publication in the early 60s that sort of not just introduces but consolidates this idea of the auteur theory in Britain and celebrating certain kinds of directors. Um, and it's very focused on Hollywood and finding this kind of um, creativity within the Hollywood studio system. And often the bad object that it defines greatness against is British cinema. So there's a famous editorial in movie where they talk about British cinema being as, as dead as it ever was. Perhaps it was never alive. And rather than these films being seen as new or groundbreaking or departing from the, the bad old ways of the 1950s, they're seen as just as bad. So this, this is quite a kind of interesting critique. Um, and it's picked up in 
later academic work, I think, that um, is, I, I suppose, unwilling to really celebrate the films as doing something different or doing something new, that they appear to be a new way of representing working class lives and, and working class landscapes. But actually what they affect is a, a kind of middle class perspective on this. And in writing about this, they sort of talk about the middle class provenance of the directors involved. So Lindsay Anderson, uh, Tony Richardson, etc. So there's almost like a sort of anthropological, let's look at the poor people and see how they live. Um, that kind of cultural tourism thing. And that comes across in some of the critiques of, of this group of films later on. Um, I would argue that it's problematised once you put Sheila Delaney back in the picture because she's not just a kind of bystander to this version of her play being made into a film. She adapts her own play as the screenplay. She's involved in uh, kind of helping... Uh, suggest locations for filming so once you have someone from that world who's a key creative force in making the films it becomes much harder to sustain this idea that it's an external middle class visiting eye that comes does a bit of kind of dirty realism and then moves away again and that the address of the films is to a bourgeois audience who are but just kind of enjoying a bit of poverty porn, I suppose. Um, it's altogether more complicated than that, I think. Um, and bringing the writer back into the frame kind of helps point that out, I think. What do you think, I suppose, is the kind of like longer term legacy now? Um, I was intrigued by... And we touched on this with with comparisons to other representations of class, race, and uh, sexuality on, on on screen at the time. But I was intrigued by the way that, in some ways, the film can be used as a sort of marker of the good old days of British cinema, um, and you know, comes up in in particular right wing discourses as being an example of you know how sort of Britain used to be. But actually, the film has this, you know, genuinely sort of multicultural, diverse, uh, as we touched on, kind of, you know, queer family uh, representation. So where do you think the film sits in terms of a kind of long term legacy? And, and I suppose what, what does it mean to us now? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I talk a bit in the book about the kind of deployment of old films along with other older cultural artifacts in the present day and how they are pressed into service in kind of the culture wars and particularly as you say this idea of you know what well, this is how it used to be and it, you know this nostalgic gaze back at the, the good old days I think what one of the things that A Taste of Honey really strongly refutes is the idea that things were great then I mean it's any joy or pleasure or self-fulfillment that comes to the character's in A Taste of Honey is very hard one and mostly it shows how kind of difficult things are for them, how difficult it is to be black, gay, a single mother, a teenager, married mother, how how 
difficult, how harrowing that is. Um, and the joy is kind of in spite of that. So, you know, even though it's got pub sing-alongs and trips to the Blackpool Pier and lots of like potentially nostalgic tropes, it's it's certainly not, you know, things were great back then and now it's all <laughs> gone to hell in a handcart. I think it shows that actually this period isn't a golden age. It's actually a very difficult time for a lot of people. It's not something that we should be kind of, you know, nostalgically wallowing in. What we might nostalgically wallow in is the, the, the opportunity that briefly someone like Sheila Delaney was granted by a, a series of kind of cultural serendipities that meant that a, a Salford teenager could send a spec play off and that it might be read by a theatre producer who might put it on and, and turn it into a hit. I think some of those opportunities are harder to come by now but I'm not sure that, you know, it was a, a fantastic state of creative equality back then either. I mean, these things are always achieved in the, the kind of cracks and fissures of the, the the dominant culture. That's, you know, that seems very clear to me. It's always difficult to write a short book. Uh, in some ways, you know, it, it's easy to write, you know, a, a kind of uh, epic tome, um, but, you know, really kind of hitting the, I suppose precision of, of a word count is, is really tricky. And it strikes me that in, in some ways, um, this is the kind of book where you might need a bit of a rest afterwards <laughs> and to do that kind of, you know, precise writing and precise editing job. But at the same time, the book is full of, I suppose, you know, sort of further uh, possibilities in, in terms of your own writing, not least of which actually is that point you've just made about the nature of um I mean, I'd call them kind of inequalities in, in creative production at the time, but, you know, the sort of broader um, difficulties of, of getting stuff made. You mentioned having worked on, you know, kind of bigger project about uh, British cinema in, in the 60s. And is, is this something you're going to kind of come back to? Is there a, um, you know, another kind of possible book um, in this space in the works? Or are you going to move on to something, I guess, kind of completely different? Well, I'm kind of working on two parallel projects that have some that that kind of relate back in maybe slightly at a tangent way so I'm working at the moment on the the British filmmaker Muriel Box who was um, a screenwriter and script editor and making films in the uh, 1940s 1950s um, and her last film as director is sort of in the early 1960s um, and I think she's a really fascinating figure, in particularly in terms of gender, but also class as well, about how you manage to do work when the dominant culture is saying women can't direct films and almost impossible obstacles are put in your way. And yet, you know, through a combination of things, you do manage to, to make films, but also her reflections on all of that. So I'm very interested in her and I'm doing some work on her at the moment. And the other thing that I'm interested in is kind of going back to some other work about all the people that are involved in production and their kind of creative roles. So I did some work a few years back on the script supervisor or the, the continuity 
girl, as it was usually called, um, in, in production and her function, uh, both in terms of filmmaking, but also this kind of social function that she fulfills in almost being like the mum of the set of the crew. Um, and I'm looking to expand some of that. So I'm still interested in production and I'm still interested in that, that period of British cinema. So it's, I, I see it as all, it's all interconnected in one way or another.